Good evening, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown on the D-Day beaches of Normandy in France. And I am going back nine hours earlier to the beautiful province of British Columbia in Canada. And tonight I have on the show Ron Bazaar. How are you doing, Ron? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your doing this. Hey, listen, <laughs> you know, when 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 you do my kind of work, you get I get all kinds of people contacting me and and somehow Ron must have found out about my website or something. And all of a sudden I get this email and there's this picture. Uh, and he said, that's me, 1976 in China. And I'm going, wow, there are so <laughs> few foreigners that got to go to China back um back then and I, I only know one other person one other westerner who who was in china in 1976 and that that was um and that's a godfrey or robertson and so i thought what what an incredible story you know i mean anybody anybody they can, they can go to china in 1976 uh, must have a heck of a story to tell let me just do a quick introduction uh, about ron <clears throat> ron Bazaar was born and raised in Montreal. He got a Bachelor's of Commerce at McGill in 1968, an MBA at Harvard in 1970. At 22 years of age, the youngest of 750 students, entrepreneur and early innovator of many businesses, introduced ginseng to North America in 1974 traveled to China in 1976 on business. And that's, of course, what I'd like to uh, hear, hear that wonderful story. And this is interesting, put out of business many times by different government policies. That should be interesting. Brought futons to Canada in 1981. Early, early adapter of the internet, once had 1,500 websites all integrated, but die, but they, but they, they died out in the 2008 slash 2009 uh, financial collapse, and studied many aspects of natural health for decades, and has authored more than six books on this subject, also children's educational books, which you and I have, uh, which you and I have uh, talked about trying to get you published in China. So thanks for being on the show, Ron. Great. As I say, it's a pleasure to be here. I love talking about that time because it sure was a highlight of my life going to China. Yeah, I bet, I bet. <laughs> other, other, other than other than your um, your brief, um, um, you know, quote press bio, just tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got where you are today. Well, that's uh, quite a story. Uh, and it was a dream, of course, when in McGill getting a Bachelor of Commerce to go to get an MBA from Harvard. But uh, we knew the the chances were pretty slim. And I had done terrible in my um, in my fourth year at McGill. I had done terrible in my SAT exams. I, I was way lower than the average grade for the average for the, <laughs> the entry class. And I thought I had no chance in a million of getting in. But my mother, what a blessing she she was. She said, well, why don't you apply anyway? <laughs> so um, I applied to six universities and um, none of which I thought I would get into. 
And the first one that came back was the University of British Columbia and said, as long as you pass your fourth year, we accept you into our program. Well, that was a no brainer. I knew I would pass. Then I got the uh, University of Western Ontario MBA program and they accepted me unconditionally. And then Cornell University and then University of Chicago and then Columbia University. <laughs> and the last one, was Harvard. I got accepted unconditionally into Harvard. It blew me away. So it was a very difficult first year there. I was 20 entering there. I, I had um, never lived away from home until, you know, that point. I had just traveled to Europe in 68, my first trip on a plane and away. And the average age was 26. And many of them had been in the army, had been um, to Vietnam, had been um, uh, in industry, had already a second degree in engineering or something. So it was very intimidating going to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> but I survived. <laughs> with a little yeah, help. obviously. <laughs> and uh, a little, uh, with a little help from whom? From a friendly weed. <laughs> oh, okay. From a friendly weed. <laughs> gotcha. So uh, that's how I began. When I finally graduated, this you have to remember, this was the time of Vietnam marches and universities were being shut down. Harvard Business School, the, the uh, Harvard was closed. The university was closed because almost all of the University of Harvard is in Cambridge. But the business schools across the Charles River in Boston side, never closed. Business is business. <laughs> Didn't yeah. matter. Chemical was killing peasants and people all over Vietnam. So it was a very tumultuous time, 70. And by the time I graduated, I was rebelling. I was, you know, I became a hippie for a couple of years, basically. <laughs> traveled to India, overland in, in 71, went through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, down the Khyber Pass into Pakistan and into India. And on the way back, it was just days before they closed the border for a, a, a skirmish war between um, India and, pa and Pakistan. So in 73, um, I... Uh, was looking for something to do and my really best friend in those days was uh, my friend Peter uh, and he had met this um, Chinese um, um, monk who was working as a draftsman in a in a large tech comp uh, tech in those days was very different than today uh, draftsman and he was had escaped from China and was a Shaolin monk and he knew all about this wonder herb called ginseng that no one had ever heard about. So he suggested to me that why don't we investigate further and maybe start writing letters to China and Korea, which were the two main places that grew it, and see if we could start a business. And then we had a, so eventually the four of us, uh, there was a, a fourth partner brought in some money. We started the business. So had a lot of chutzpah in those days. So I would start writing letters to China and so in Korea saying, we're the largest Canadian distributor of ginseng products in Canada. <laughs> Please send samples and more information and prices. The poor postman went crazy because we were getting boxes from all these ginseng companies in Korea and all these different branches from China with samples, you know, these crazy boxes of stamps that looked like wild at me. And we would open these up and test and 
you know the taste and and the, the and run them through our Shaolin monk, um, who was a master herbalist as well and Tai Chi Kung Fu master, of course. And um, uh, so this was all going on in the basement of my house in downtown Montreal, you know the world headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> so one day out of you know about three or four months after, I get a phone call. Ha, ah, Mr. Bazaar. This is Mr. Chang from Embassy of People's Republic of China in Ottawa. We have delegation coming to see you in two days. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> I say, yes, of course. Uh, let me get back to you with the address. Because <laughs> we were using the PO box for our address at the time for international commerce. I call up Peter and say, Peter, what do we do? They can't come to my house in my basement. It's not going to work. So he had an empty suite above his imported English woolens business on the main street of Montreal. He was bringing in imported English woolens and selling to suit makers and so on the finest suits uh, material. And this empty suite above had been damaged, uh, had water damage from someone screwed up with the plumbing or something. So we put a a SWAT team in there 20 for 48 hours to re-mud and re-plaster and to, to totally transform this place, put a desk in with flowers and a red carpet up the stairs, and fax machine in the back, secretary, desks, the whole nine yards. We finished with seconds to spare when they arrived at 9 a.m. and they came and one of the very funny things I wrote in they always wanted to know how much volume will you buy and of course we wanted to be exclusive distributors for Canada at the time right so I always replied to their letters well it depends if you give us exclusive distributorship or not otherwise how can we tell you how much we can buy and, and know what we could sell so I said to them it's like the old story what comes first the chicken or the egg so they come and they present gifts to us, very subtle gifts. Guess what they brought? A chicken in a, a little figurine chicken <laughs> and an egg. <laughs> Together <laughs> was the message. <laughs> so we began our conversation. And in that meeting, we had uh, we had uh, a pretty senior um, government official from the federal government, and also someone from uh, high up in CIBC, which was our bank, just, you know, give a lot of show and tell. <laughs> so anyway, and we're dressed impeccably in our imported English wool and tailor-made suits. <laughs> this, this is how we began with China. And shortly thereafter, um, uh, within a year, we became exclusive distributors for China. Um, and of course, we wanted to go after the big, which was um, the United States. That was the real market because the U.S. was a couple of years always, especially California, ahead of Canada in the adoption of new natural products and so on. So we would write letters and the same thing went through there. Um, and the second delegation came to to visit us and um, talk about these issues and say, well, we don't know um, the answer to that one. You'll have to take it up with head office. So eventually we went, um, we got a, an invitation to go to the embassy in Ottawa 
to f discuss further. So we made an appointment at 11 o'clock, figuring, you know, we had two times, 11 o'clock or 2 o'clock. We figured 11 o'clock is a good time. We go to Ottawa, go to the embassy, and the embassy in Ottawa is a giant, giant, must have been an old um, gray stone monastery or school that they had taken over, but a really big, huge building. Gated, of course. We go in there, and um, luckily uh, the meeting extends into the dinner, into the lunch hour. So they prepare lunch for us, uh, and I'm telling you, it was like nothing I had ever eaten before in terms of we had been, we were, you know, we, with our Shaolin monk in Montreal, we go to all the Chinese restaurants, and he knew what to order and everything, and we had fantastic food, and we were pretty expert with chopsticks and eating and, and so on. But we realized afterwards that what was going on in the embassy in Ottawa was backdoor negotiations, secret negotiations um, between the US and China in a neutral Canada country. Because don't forget, Nixon had gone to China in late 72 to open the door with China. Mm -hmm. China-Russia relationships were not good, and I'll get into that a little later. And so that opened the door to discussions of uh, how they would do diplomatic recognition. And there's a lot of stuff to work out. So delegates would come up from the US to Ottawa and from China to Ottawa. And in the Chinese embassy, they would negotiate. Mm -hmm. So they, they sent the best cooks from China there. <laughs> and <telling laughs> you, like, you know, it was like a 10 course meal, a giant table, just, just Peter and myself and two or three of them. And, uh, so the next time we had to go to the embassy, we made sure 11 o'clock was our time. <laughs> so anyway, they gave us a visa to go to China uh, to meet with the three different branches. So we were dealing with the China National Native Produce and Animal Byproducts Import-Export Corporation. That's the official title, one of the half a dozen largest trading companies in China in those days. They had light industry, heavy industry, oil and gas. So this was, uh, you know, especially in those days, they're, they're probably their agricultural and farm products were one of their biggest exports. Or, um, so we were dealing with the Peking, it was called it in those days, even on their letterhead, the Peking Native Produce Branch, the Tianjin, which is now um, Tianjin or Tianjin. Um, yeah, Tianjin, yeah. Tianjin, it was called Tianjin in those days, and the and Dalian in the north. So Dalian in the north is in Manchuria and had some of the best ginseng roots in the world because ginseng was revered by the emperor as the, the root of life, the most sacred root, and the older the root that they could find, the more valued it would be. And you can tell the age of the root by the top of the, the stem. Each year, the root leaves a little nodule and it gets bigger and bigger. And so you can have a nodule that's like this big for a 200-year-old root. It could be worth thousands and thousands of dollars back then. <laughs> so um, we went to China. We flew from, this was amazing, on Peter's almost expired um, American Express card because we were we basically were running out of money. We had to get this deal or or our business wouldn't thrive because someone else would take over in the U.S. So we definitely have to go get U.S. distribution. Are you still there? You've frozen your screen a bit, Jeff. Oh, no, I'm doing great. I'm just, I'm enthralled. 
Oh, okay, good. So, um, so we got a flight from Montreal to New York, from New York to Paris. Each time we're changing planes from Paris to Athens, from Athens to Tehran, from Tehran to Bangkok, and from Bangkok to Beijing. God almighty. After, 30, after 36 hours, we get off the plane at the airport in Peking, it was called. I'm going to use Peking because that was still called, the, you know, the Western imperialist name Peking <laughs> rather than yeah. Peking, which it renamed. So we get off the plane and it's a giant, giant tarmac airport. And we're a long way from from the um, the buildings or wherever, the custom, you know, the, the, airport, the terminal. And we start walking and eventually a, a bus comes and picks up everybody on the plane and brings us to the to the terminal and we see the barefoot doctor quote <laughs> and uh, we say we're on our way to Peking. They say, no, 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 no. I say, yeah, Peking. No, no. You go Dalian. <laughs> Dalian. No, no. Peking. They wouldn't let us go to Peking. They wanted us to go up to see the Dalian branch. So we fly up um, in the next hour. They put us on a plane, a small plane. We fly up to Dalian. And Dalian was the port of entry that the Japanese used to invade China. It has an incredible harbor there. And so in 37, um, when uh, the Japanese invaded, it was through there. We were shocked to still see in 76, this is March 76, early, late March, early April, the devastation and debris and rubble still on the streets. I mean, the city was probably almost raised, you know, in the war. Um, they took us to a hotel that that um, must have survived. It was I don't know if it was British built or who built it, but it had gold faucets in the washroom, <laughs> and, which just was staggering to see. We were the first white quote Westerners to visit there. I think since you know, before the war, 37, because anybody, any Westerners would long have evacuated uh, between 33 and 37 as tensions were mounting. So it was uh, quite a big shindig for them. Um, and, you know, we negotiated everything and we, the same roadblock hit. They wanted to know how much we would buy. Um, and we said, it depends if you give us exclusive territory for the U.S., and they say, you'll have to take that up with head office. So uh, <laughs> they couldn't answer that. They opened. So one of the highlights of the two or two or three days that we were there was they opened up the underground city. Now, I don't know how many people know that in the late 60s and early 70s into mid 70s, perhaps that China's biggest foe was Russia. I don't know the history or why, but Chairman Mao in 69 commissioned 300,000 workers to build an underground city in Beijing. And they must have done the same in Dalian because they opened up, mm -hmm. went down from a, a, a main government building down to the basement and then down many flights of stairs further down into this tunnel system with rooms off it of all kinds, some were storage, some were food, some were barbershops, some were all kinds of stuff. And then the giant cavernous 
um, place that had huge trucks in it and so on. And here they, they had a ceremony for us where they took out um, all the diplomats from the city were there and, you know, toasting and China, Canada friendship and so on and so forth. So it was a big affair. Then we fly to uh, to Beijing and we meet the Tansin branch and go through the same shindig with them. U.S., we need U.S. exclusive territory. <laughs> that was our bottom line. Now, you got to picture all these negotiations. You're on one side of the table, they're on the other side of the table. And um, then we move from Tianjin to, to the head office um, negotiator, the, 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 head, the head of the whole China National Native Produce, Animal Byproducts, Import and Export Corporation <laughs> for all the different branches throughout China. <laughs> so, just all their silks, all their, you know, all the stuff that they make, all the food. So, and they have their own translator. Now, we were lucky in time for that meeting, we had... Our, a translator from on our, who was on our board of directors, who was from to Toronto, who was born in China but raised in Toronto. They must have left during the t uh, the 40s or something. Her father was apparently chairman of the Shanghai Bank in those days, so she was quite an educated gal. She came with her fur coat. If you look at the picture that I show, um, you can see her with her fur coat on. Um, so there we are in meetings with with them. Um, everything is going through his translator. And my friend Peter um, speaks many languages because he was born in Transylvania, um, Count Dracula's territory. And he spoke many European languages and of course English and French. And he picked up languages easily. So hanging around Chinatown and having our Shaolin monk, he picked up a few words in Chinese, enough to fake the Chinese that he could understand, because sometimes they would talk amongst themselves in heavy moments of negotiation. <clears throat> and these negotiations would go for hours. They would pick us up at the hotel, mm -hmm. hotel and the hotel um, had was the hotel in those days. It was, you know, a hotel must have been built by the British or back when. There were delegates of, from all over um, Eastern Europe, no Western Europeans, Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, um, uh, Serbia, you know, all the, all the Eastern European bloc countries, I assume as well from Russia and so on as part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And many and many from the Middle East. There were Arabs in their full nine yard gear and so on. And um, but we were pretty much the only Westerners there. We had the Canadian commercial attache from the embassy when we first got to Peking. We we had him come um, so we could pick his brain about negotiations. So he came up to our room in the hotel and we would ask him questions and on something pretty sensitive, he would write the answer on a piece of paper and he'd point up to the sprinkler. <laughs> 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 okay then so we would tear it up to throw it in the in the garbage can he, he would shake his head no 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 he took out his mat his his lighter and burnt because he said if you flush them he wrote if you flush this down the toilet even they will they will know this now this is the commercial attached telling us <laughs> not making up conspiracy theories or anything so um 
you have to remember too that in those days China was a net a net importer, drastic net importer of foodstuffs and energy and this net from the world, and they were desperate for foreign exchange. So that's why this was such an important thing for them to have, because they weren't exporting the stuff we know from China today. This was long before any of that. This is not that, that many years after the devastation of the Cultural Revolution, and and uh, and so the country was still in abject poverty back then. It was way before, um, and the devastation of 20, 30 years of war and 80 years of occupation by the West. And you know all about that. I don't have to explain that to you and your audience. So they really wanted to do business with us. And Canada wanted to help enable that. And that's why the commercial attache came there. So um, that was quite an experience there. Um, so once we realized that they could listen to us, you know, they would pick us up at eight in the morning, God forbid, in their limousine to take us to their meetings. You know, and these are giant stretch Eastern European made, probably Russia or, or Czechoslovakia made limousines. And one one morning, one evening after a long day of negotiations, Peter looked up at that sprinkler and said, we're so tired of being forced to get up so early and we need, you know, we're tired. We're not going to go to a meeting until 10. <laughs> Guess what happened next morning? <laughs> 10 o'clock to meet. They sent the chauffeur. <laughs> so, um, another thing for the contracts you need to have, you don't sign with your signature your, your, like we do in the West. You have to have a chopper made. Mm -hmm. So we had a chopper. We went to... Um, to the part of Peking where you could go in and say, here's our company name, make us a chopper. Came back the next day because we knew we would need that for the contracts. So back to the negotiations with uh, both sides of the table, it would be offering um, tea, constantly tea, drink, drink. But you can't go to the bathroom and lose face. You can't be the first to break. <laughs> and they would offer you a cigarette. Mr. Bazaar, cigarette. No, no, I don't smoke. Mr. Bizarre, cigarette. No, I don't smoke. <laughs> I took up smoking. Double happiness brand cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I remember one time the, it went from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. No bathroom breaks with constant tea. being. They fill up your glass. They toast you. Drink your tea constantly. That was unbelievable. Um, they opened up after negotiations seemed to have been completed. They opened up for lunch and took us to the Summer Palace, which was basically closed in those. Mm. And they opened mm. up a giant restaurant for us. There was nobody else in it. It was, you know, huge. I mean, you don't see things that size in Canada or North America. I mean, this is a giant space. And in the middle is this huge round table with white tablecloth and a centerpiece with where you can spin the food around because that's how they do it. You serve from the, the center console. And each person there had three waiters. One was just for the Mao Thai, which makes vodka look like water <laughs> in comparison. It is a strong drink, as you know. 
and they would constantly toast you Canada China friendship um your good health and you know and the the, the wine waiter the mouth wine waiter would constantly fill up your little shot glass for you purpose being to get you happy and inebriated the mm -hmm. meal incredible as you can imagine 15 courses one highlight was the the head manager at the beginning shortly after grabs with chopsticks a, a morsel to pass to peter um, um on his plate and um you know long chopsticks grabs perfectly adeptly so peter thanks him and a couple of courses later when something comes around to peter we were very expert with chopsticks ourselves because we had been going to chinatown for years with our shaolin monk etc so we were able to grab he peter grabbed the morsel just like that and offered it to the head manager again the, the ceo or whatever you call him and so they were most impressed with it the other thing that was amazing is, is most of the time we wore our suits and we both had fairly long beards i remember when they took us to Tiananmen square and there were giant pictures i mean i'm talking 10 stories high or something at least of um of marx and uh, i think the other one was uh, lenin overlooking the square so there's these guys with their big full beards <laughs> and here we are westerners you know we were definitely a strange breed so in the end um so after they take out the contracts after that meal and of course I didn't drink a lot I pretended <laughs> so um, I could review the contract very quickly and couldn't sign it because they had admitted the exclusive territory for the U.S. <laughs> in it everything else was there all the quantities we would buy and everything but we had negotiated that the U.S. Had, was to be in there so, <gasps> Well, oversight. We will fix it tomorrow. Oh, by the way, they had to um, eliminate our uh, to extend our visa because it had expired. So of course they hired. They had a in all our meetings there was a political watchdog with us from everything, everywhere we went. Every this guy was there, and it looked like all the managers hated this guy because they couldn't talk freely and so on with him there was the appearance so the um they said they would change the contracts and have it ready for us so he must have enabled the visa this political guy from the party and everybody there by the way was all in mao suits the only difference was mm -hmm. they're up was a different color um so there was brown there was gray and there was blue and other than the limousine, um, there was no cars. Um, everybody rode a bicycle, and they must have heard from Henry Ford, you can have any color bicycle you want as long as it's black. Because that's <laughs> all were, because zillions of bicycles would be parked outside an office building or something. How they would find their own bicycle when they all looked identical, I haven't a clue. It's still a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, um, they supposedly changed the contract, um, and so they pick us up. And on the way to the airport, again, I'm reviewing the contract, and uh, and uh, it still wasn't perfectly properly in there. So the manager wrote in and initialed it, 
and uh, we signed the contract and flew out to Guangzhou in the Canton in the south. Guangzhou, it's, again, Canton was the name before uh, in the west. Guangzhou, right? no, it's called Guangzhou. Guangzhou, okay, Guangzhou. Yeah, yeah, Guang we flew Guangzhou. And then I think we took the train across the border into Hong Kong. And um, it was quite, quite the experience, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> so in 1975, prior to that, I wrote a book called Ginseng. Not, not I wrote, I commissioned a book and provided a lot of the information for Sylvia Levine for this book. And it was published under my tiny little company called the whole earth health company. So this is a booklet to explain to North Americans what ginseng, because no one knew what it was. No, no one knew about herbs and so on. So this is like a miracle herb and we had all the research that had been done worldwide on it and so on. 10,000 books printed, arrived to my quote basement, basement um, warehouse. So we had the office still on, on Main Street, but the, my basement was now the warehouse for uh, the books. Somehow Food and Drug Canada got a hold, hold of this or found out about this because this is how we were going to educate people, give these away and explain. They came, they red taped the whole house and everything all around outside. They came with a bunch of vans. They loaded up the vans with all the boxes of books, took them away and burned them. All our money had gone into making these books, our excess cash flow. We had no money to hire lawyers to fight for us. So this book is the only surviving copy. 10,000 books burnt. How many people do you know had 10,000 books burnt in their career? Sadly, I mean, so, and then our first order's on the way, it's on the boat um, from China in late 76, early 77. And uh, suddenly the US Food and Drug Administration calls um, ginseng non-grass, which means grass is generally regarded as safe. If you get a ruling non-grass, the border suddenly closed. Our truck couldn't get through to the to deliver stuff to the distributors in the US. It was just shut like a guillotine like that and overnight killed our business. And that was the end of ginseng. One side story, while we were in Beijing, we went to see the North Korean embassy and people there. Uh, again, another giant building surrounded by, you know, um, stone walls and security and everything. And we had been we had been writing them because they have some of the best ginseng because of the, the northern mountains in, in Korea. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went to the embassy there and we had a long conversation with them and and they would uh, they agreed to communicate with us. But as I say, not that long after this, the guillotine hit and we were out of business. And well, one of the most famous expressions that the Chinese um, delegates would always use when they didn't want to answer yes or no to a, a direct question, can we have US distribution or anything? Ha, ah, we will take it up for consideration. <laughs> 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 so they're masters of negotiation. They've been doing this for thousands of years. And uh, the only way we persevered is we were there all or nothing. We got to get the U.S. or it's not worth coming back home. So, you know, 
we had strength of conviction in a sense, so nothing could break our will that this is what we want, and we got it. Unfortunately, that was the end of it. What happened to all the ginseng that arrived? Well, it hadn't arrived yet, it was on the boat. Another company bought it and slowly sold it off in Canada. About a year and a half later, they lifted the import alert. Um, I believe, now this gets political, um, Korea and China were the big competitors for ginseng, and we were importing from Korea as well. Now, the largest ginseng company in Korea was owned, Ilwa Ginseng Company, was owned by Reverend Moon of the Moonies. I don't know oh, if you... Of course, I mean, of course. He was also head of the Korean CIA. Mm-hmm. So Chinese ginseng and what we were doing was a big threat. I don't know. I can't verify anything. I'm just giving you some information. So anyway, a year and a half, two years later, they they lifted the embargo but our business was dead you know we we had debts and and bank pulled it and oh one of the securities the bank took is we stored ginseng in the basement of the bank (laughs) 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 they wanted to be really secure we could only remove it if we came in with an invoice of sale so of course peter being the showman that he was would orchestrate that we would go in there between 12 and one o'clock the busiest time when lunch hour and all the people were there and we'd come in the truck would pull up in the front and peter would be there and a couple of our the workers would come in with him and say we got to get our ginseng out of the basement <laughs> okay let's go and so you know all the attention with all the people there and you know this went on for about a year <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, 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 but but it's sad, you know, when when a business you put so much time, energy, and sacrifice into dies, it's really sad. So I pivoted. Wow. Seventy-eight. I wrote a, a business plan because um, I was an early pioneer in the in the uh, natural foods business. I wrote a business plan under, under the same name of the book that I published uh, here, which was uh, the Whole Earth Health Company. So the business plan was called Whole Earth, opening up a chain of natural food superstores across North America. I preceded McKay, who founded Whole Foods in 82, and he successfully raised 10 or 20 or $50 million back then. But 78 in Montreal, I was a little too early. I came this close, the largest distributor of, of imported delicacies and so on, reviewed the business plan and and it was just too early because Montreal and Canada, as I said, was a few years behind California and New York and which were the centers of of uh, the most advanced wing of the natural foods industry. And of course, look at it today. So, you know, the whole earth would have been whole foods that I succeeded or maybe if I had been in California, I would have succeeded. Mm-hmm. Then I got into the water business called Aqua V water of life you speak french and we were selling water distillers uh, reverse osmosis machines and so on and back in those days if you wanted to buy a gallon of distilled water it cost four dollars and 99 cents this is uh late 79 early 80. now four dollars and 99 cents today as you tell me what that's worth 20 bucks 25 yeah 20 25 dollars i'm sure oh so you know what we did is is we we had a big hundred gallon tank that we would make water go distilled water and people could come with their empty one gallon bottle and jug and fill it up for 99 cents. So this was kind of our lost leader cost us pennies to make. 
It was our lost leader to try to sell the machines. Well, the Quebec government and their wisdom then came and shut that operation down, saying, oh, it's not so. <laughs> well, that was my second running with your friendly government policies. <laughs> so yeah. 1980, I moved out west with my family and then life changes happened. We ended up getting divorced and there I was, didn't know hardly anybody in Vancouver and met somebody and um, long story short, uh, got into the futon business and started importing from Japan and fabrics and, and sheets and, uh, and, and silk stuff from China and had stuff custom made for us. And that business was gangbusters. And then in 87, uh, you know, we had not only manufacturing, but retailing. Uh, the uh, we we had a venture capital deal deal for a million dollars, which we desperately needed for expansion, and it was to be signed and sealed on October the twenty first, nineteen eighty seven. On October nineteenth, nineteen eighty seven, there was the biggest stock market crash in history. Mm -hmm. Or the Dow twenty five twenty five percent. Oh, at least it was huge. And uh, so that wiped out the, the deal with them, uh, with the venture, because, you know, all their money's tied up and stuff, so they couldn't close the deal. And then the friendly Canadian government, in their wisdom, decided that to come out with these regulations, because if you smoke in bed and you cause a fire, we need to prevent that. So what they did is they regulated that you have to have fire retardants in your mattress, all different chemicals added. So if a guy smokes and drops it on his mattress, it won't ignite the mattress. So here we are selling natural cotton mattresses and we, we had pivoted and grew the business to great Canadian sleep stores in Canada and great American sleep stores. That was the business plan that we had raised the capital, theoretically raised the capital for. So in their wisdom, you would have to put all these harmful chemicals. They're toxic to you to sleep eight hours a day on a bed with that garbage in it. So I went on CBC, which is Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, national television, um, you know, um, to say this regulation is totally insane and ridiculous. Are you aware that there's 243 different chemicals in your average cigarette, filtered cigarette with the filters and stuff and stuff they add to the tobacco? They add saltpeter to the tobacco, which is a burning agent that makes sure that if you light a cigarette, put it in an ashtray, it burns all the way out if you don't even puff on it. Take the saltpeter and the chemicals out of the cigarette and you don't have a fire problem. If you buy <laughs> tobacco, pure natural tobacco, and you light it, and you don't keep puffing on it, it goes out. And the yeah. problem, but in their wisdom, and of course, you know, the tobacco industry, and in, this was 87, was um, um, still, you know, gangbusters, and was just the beginning of the, you know, smoking is bad campaign. So that killed that business. <laughs> <laughs> I can laugh at it now, Jeff, but it's so painful there. You know, you go yeah. through bankruptcy, you go through business bankruptcy, all your employees lose, uh, hope is lost. We had a great model for growing the business and, you know, vertically integrated, importing the best fabrics and products from around the world, and, you know, sleep, basically Canada's and U.S. sleep experts. 
So that was a, a tough one. And then um, what happened next? Oh, some of the silk banding from China was gorgeous. I still have it, you know, silk quilts, silk sheets and so on. Incredible. We made wonderful products and imported incredible products. So that's uh, then in the 90s. So that, that's when I started um, children's book publishing. You saw the book. Mm -hmm. I an activity book for non-smoking children. That came about, Jeff, because the kids brought home, you know, my kids were probably about eight years old at the time, seven, came back from school with this red book with a horrible image of, of, uh, of uh, smoking on it and it looked ugly and it created fear. Smoking will kill you and cause cancer and all this stuff. Well, the kids don't know what that stuff is at that age. And fear is not how you motivate someone to, to they're not smoking even yet. So we there's got to be a way of turning this negative imagery into something positive. So I can run faster if I don't smoke. I can jump higher if I don't smoke. I can sing better if I don't smoke. All these. So each page of the book had these different things and attract um, uh, a man and a woman. She gets pregnant, has babies and all these different things all the way up along. So so we sold those books to the Canadian Cancer Society, different societies and um, non-smoking groups and all of this stuff. And we sold a lot of books. And that's how I guess we met. I wrote you about, you know, because yeah. I had translated the had translated the book and we changed the imagery. So the, instead of whitey Western looking images, we had more Chinese figures and eyes and so on. And of course, Chinese writing and did all of that. And unfortunately, so far, I haven't broken the barrier to to finding a publisher there because China's definitely interested in cutting back smoking, or at least they were before COVID hit. And uh, absolutely. So Anybody has any leads to that? It's a great book, and parents are there are aware of smoking, and it also helps stop adults from smoking when they realize this, and then they see their kids this and the harm that smoking. So it's a great way of not only um, enabling kids not to smoke, but it also influences older generations. You also wrote a book recently um, about. Um you wrote well you said you wrote six books but i the one you sent me the cover of is about the pandemic uh, tell us your inspiration and what does the book show well the book is a compilation of a lot of alternative fake news and information disinformation misinformation misinformation labeled by mainstream media and the governments that COVID is the most deadly thing in the world and we have to lock down not just to soften the curve a little bit for a week or two but you know forever until we come up with uh, safe and effective injections well that's the misinformation and disinformation and unfortunately it was created through a highly orchestrated fear campaign that had been practiced pro way prior to this if you dig deep into this back in even back in 2019 um, uh, they simulated they wrote about what they would do and how they would do it it's published out there you can see this and so lo and behold it happened they used the imagery whether it was fake or real of people dying on the streets in china and the most powerful one for me was the, the rush to build these incredible hospitals overnight with uh, you know um, in Wuhan with 
100 cranes working to build these emergency hospitals because they would be needed because it would be so disastrous, this COVID thing. And then you see the images coming out of, of uh, New York and Italy. And, and it turns out that one of the images that they were using to show this or videos was fake. It was from something years before <laughs> that they were using to justify mm -hmm. the fear campaign there. And so, so much of what happened was misguided government policy, taking people, um, uh, sick people and putting them into nursing homes not allowing anybody to see people because, oh, it's so contagious. And then very early on, there were proven safe and effective remedies, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, um, that truly um, can work to enhance your immune system. And if you get sick, the statistics are anywhere from 85 to 95% recovery um, uh, if you use ivermectin or or hydroxychloroquine. And ivermectin has got a Nobel Peace Prize for the most effective um, medical drug in history. And it's from a natural source uh, and it's been used for malaria and so on throughout the world, no side effects, and is highly effective for COVID. Mm -hmm. So given that you don't need these vaccines, and then it was turning out when the vaccines started rolling out, you would see these athletes dying at a much higher rate than ever before like if if maybe there were six in a year uh, on the soccer or football or whatever it's called players um, dying on the pitch on average in a year it suddenly was up in their 20s and 30s and, and many with cardiac arrest and severe problems and so on this is unheard of you're talking the fittest people and many many more statistics coming up. So I, I was reading a lot of newsletters around all of this and compiling the best of these. So the book is a is a short, easy read with a lot of images and charts and cartoons and so on to really drive home that <laughs> it's the chances of you're dying from this unless you're highly got a whole bunch of health conditions already you're very elderly um, your whole s immune system is weak yeah then you may go just like you would with a bad flu year <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and what's shocking right now jeff as you know is if you look at all-cause mortality how that has changed especially this past year around the world is mm -hmm. way higher than it was during covid at its height Mm -hmm. We know where those. We know where that's coming from. This coming from the vaccines. Well, exactly. The vaccines are killing. The, the vaccines are killing people. Well, they're destroying your immune. The Western. System. Yeah, yeah. The Western vaccines. Yeah. So the immune system is being being shattered, and um, and that's why they're trying. And each time you get a, a booster or a dose, you're weakening your immune system. As proven by, keep getting sick. So yeah. how, how many leaders quote who, who, if they've taken it for real or not, I don't know. You know, you, you wonder if like Trudeau truly was injected or if it, if it was a fake thing. Yeah, saline solution. Yeah, so you don't really know. But, but the reality is that a safe and effective vaccine is not safe and it's not effective. <laughs> <laughs> so those of you who think it's safe and effective, please spend a little bit of time reading credible sources of 
disinformation and misinformation from the alternative world. <laughs> like eminent doctors and Nobel Prize winners who are writing about the dangers of this and have been, you know, have been banned from practicing and, and have been, you know, taken off social media because they're bad and go against the, the mainstream narrative. But it's there's millions of people who are dying. The statistics are already there in the VARS database and the European database. They're there. Mm -hmm. See them. Um, and the sad part is, Jeff, I think once people commit themselves to a course of action that, you know, COVID is deadly, I'm fearful, I better get a vaccine, I better get a booster. It's hard for someone to admit, gosh, I was wrong. Yeah. How many people have the capacity to look at themselves in the mirror and actually say that our egos are too strong? We, we're not good at humbling ourselves and saying, wow. And sadly, there's going to be many, many more deaths and amongst our mm -hmm. that we have who somehow and handicapped, handicapped people, health yeah. limited people. Yeah, cancers are up tenfold already this past year. I mean, and now they're calling it sudden adult death syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This new disease that's out there. Just so it's just like the sudden infant dead death syndrome. Well, if you you stick a bunch of needles of vaccines, like you know, twenty or thirty of them in the first year into kids, what do you expect to happen? <laughs> yeah. A healthy baby doesn't matter if they lie in their stomach or back. It's not a problem for a healthy baby <laughs> that doesn't have all these toxins in them. Yeah. And I could go on and on about about that. Um, I, I've I've had to shake my head sadly, and I see it around me here where I live in this natural environment that people are still asleep at the wheel and don't want to know. And the moment you try to bring something out, they think you're a nutcase. And so it's sad and we're going to go through the only way out of this is for enough people to wake up and say no, no more government crazy. Mm -hmm. The next step is is the digital central bank digital currencies tied into a, uh, your social score, your green energy usage and, you know, the control mechanisms are in place to be able to do this. And it is going to be a horrible world taking away our freedoms, taking away I mean, they're destroying the planet with the geoengineering that's going on and the spraying. Very few mm -hmm. people, deadly that is to the planet. The chemicals, the aluminum, the the that that they're spraying in millions of tons annually. That is the worst climate disaster out there. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, any any questions about anything that I could share with you? What what are your uh, well yeah there's uh, geoengineering.net uh, which is a great website geoengineering.net that's that's the best site for 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 the manufacturing and altering weather and 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 it's called geoengineering.net I subscribe to their newsletter and there's another one called geo and then geoengineeringwatch.org .org okay Okay. Being watched. He's he's got a huge website. He's made a video, free video about filming the stuff and interviewing generals yeah. and on former generals about what's really going on. They just released classified data from the early 70s between the 
Pentagon and uh, the Forest Department of Forests or whatever it's called um, about how to create super fires to uh, mm -hmm. to frighten and control and devastate populations. Mm -hmm. Dane Wigington has that on there. So even governments like the Saskatchewan government a year or two ago even said, oh, yeah, we're 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 spraying to change the weather. I mean, it's, it's not a secret that this is going on, but the but it's been kept down. Oh, we're going to Bill Gates is going to fund darkening the planet and with geoengineering. It's going to just make everything worse than it is. Mm -hmm. The only solution to the horrible things that are going on is for us to become educated and not allow these things to happen to us. And I think, though, sadly, there's going to be a lot of devastation before that happens. And the world geopolitically is changing. What's just happened in, in Russia and Ukraine, um, it's insane what's going on there. You know, there's a huge history about what's going on in, in you know, there was a horrible thing that happened with the starvation of the Ukrainians that created a whole a whole uh, in the early 30s that Stalin did. So there's a natural hatred of Ukrainian and Russians. And then then the Ukrainians sided with uh, um, when there was a, a Nazi brigade in in uh, Ukraine. And before Hitler came in, 120,000 Jews were executed by the Ukrainian Nazis and to welcome the, the uh, German Nazis into the country. And Eastern Ukraine is Russian always been Russian, Russian speaking, Russian language, Russian church. The language is, you know, Zelensky has, has canceled the language, not allowed using it, not allowed uh, uh, political parties, not allowed uh, um, the Russian Orthodox Church there. So it's, it's understandable when you suppress a people like that for so long that they're going to fight back and Russia's basically mm -hmm. to protect them. And, and saying Russia's innocent of stuff, but it's negotiations should have happened. NATO NATO reneged on their agreement way back when that they would not expand eastward, would not allow nuclear weapons eastward. And they've broken all of those promises and pushed Russia into a corner. And the only way Russia has survived, and it's in their DNA, in my opinion, Napoleon was defeated by the long supply gap across Ukraine to Moscow and Leningrad. And um, that long supply chain broke down and caused Napoleon to defeat. And the same thing happened with uh, with Hitler. So they know they need a barrier and, and a neutral Ukraine. And Zelensky is intransient about it and the Western powers are are uh, intransient about it. And the new prime minister of Britain is, you know, was a hawk about, you know, we want everything back, including Crimea, which was also Russian, was just given to Ukraine by Khrushchev um, for administrative reasons. And so anyway, you, you're, you're more an expert on that than I am with the details. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's just the incentive <laughs> up there. Why don't you force everybody to a table and have some rationality about you. And and we need, in my opinion, more decentralization of the world, not more centralization. I would like my island here to be its own country. Thank you very much. 
<laughs> like Vancouver Island to be its own country. Thank you very much. We don't need these giant countries that are supported by a, a bureaucracy that's intransient and, uh, and, and embedded and, you know, and does crazy things like put me out of business constantly. And I, di I didn't tell you about the last one in 87, in, in uh, 2008, 2009 that killed my, I had a business called World Buy Direct, which was to enable both consumers and businesses to buy direct from the source without going through all the middlemen and channels of distribution because the internet enables direct contact. So we had 15 yeah. websites, one for each industry and so on. And um, again, uh, the government, well, this was an indirect action by the government, but, but they, uh, they sent a, 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 the IRS, Canada's IRS, Canada Revenue Agency came up to see me here where I live. And I was funding the business through credit cards, about $150,000 worth of credit cards. I was a master of getting credit cards. <laughs> you had to pay the game. <laughs> so uh, I was funding the business through that, you know, because we were on the verge of getting venture capital. And um, they sent a tax, two people all the way up from Victoria, almost 150 miles and two ferry boat rides to come up to this vacation paradise to inspect my books and run me through the ringer and provide all the information. In the end, they said, well, you can't be living so inexpensively because my personal income was very low and I ran all my expenses through there that I could. And I said, all my money is going into the business. So, um, they deem me to be a typical Canadian male who spends, and a typical Canadian male, according to their statistics, spends $243 on lotto tickets a year, $384 in cleaning bills, $629.42 on transportation, you know, this, the whole list of things. And if you add those up, you need an income of $35,000 to be a typical Canadian male. You only put in this much as your income. Therefore, we're deeming you to have been a typical Canadian male and you owe us the gap. Well, that put me in bankruptcy. And at the same time that happened, the, uh, the crash of the markets happened in <laughs> 2008 and 2009. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lee government's at work. <laughs> <laughs> One last question: What have you got any? Um, have you got any uh, new uh, writing projects? What's uh, what's what's on your radar for the future? Well, writing is writing has only been a way to a means to an end to to make a bad situation better. So I wrote about most of my health books were kind of out of a necessity to increase cash flow. Um, rather than a love of that business. And, and so I do have a bunch of books, but like one is on 5G and electromagnetic radiation and and um, other people have come out with pretty good books in the interval. I, I was on to this five, six, seven years ago, easily more, 10 years ago, but never finished the book. And so there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I could finish it. Um, if people don't know about those risks, they're very real. 99% um, of the time I use wired internet rather rather than Wi-Fi. But the cell phones and the towers and the 5G now, what 5G is capable of doing, it's not just for phones, but there's uh, the capability of an incre incredible application of intense 
radiation if they want to turn it up. Um, another book was on uh, one of my best-selling books on Amazon was the prostate health diet. And so, you know, the prostate and breast diseases are pretty close. So I started writing a book on the breast health diet. But since COVID, like anything doing with diet and health, if you can't bring in vaccines is the major problem today for any health condition that you, you may be having and root out of it. Um, so, you know, that one's on hold a bit. Um, I'd love to get the smoke non-smoking book into China um, to be given away there through health departments, but I haven't been able to navigate that one. Um, the, uh, I've got an, another business which came out of that non-smoking area in the late 80s, uh, mid 80s, I'm saying was um, um, in, in the futon business, sleep business. I'd go to go for lunches uh, often and take out a package of stimulants. In those days, stimulants were these interdental stimulators for gum disease. Well, I liked them just for cleaning my teeth <laughs> and they're a different kind of mm -hmm. softer and the wood and you can break one off at a time. They're very different style. Comes in a two inch by two inch package. So yeah, 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 yeah. So, so my buddy uh, came up and said to me uh, at, at the meal when I gave him one, these should be called something other than the stupid name, uh, interdental stimulators for gum disease and stimulants. And he said, how about tasty picks? So uh, that's how that idea began. We had a, our artists do a mock-up of those, but you know, I, I shelved that idea and brought it back to the forefront with Peter, my ex ginseng buddy who was living in, in Hungary, <laughs> back where he, he was near where he was born. And so we had an artist uh, contest to come up with a logo and we started connecting and finding the supplier in China for it. And, um, and uh, there's very few places that you can get this made in the world. And then started looking for the flavors and finding the flavors. And then Peter suddenly died about eight years ago. So only after two years that I shelved that one. And then my godson, his oldest son uh, seven years ago came to Canada and um, um, and so about four years ago I started tasty picks up with him because he loved the product as a you know as a young teen when his father showed him what he was doing and so we've reconnected with our supplier and uh, we we found three different flavors cinnamon mint and and orange and suppliers in North America that we would send the flavors to China and then and we were finally ready to do it and then COVID guillotine came down the supplier here in China said there's no way we will be able to import flavors from Canada or United States into China now um, you have to find a Chinese supplier so that took writing letters and getting samples and sending them to the our food science laboratory and um, reconfiguring and mixing it's not a simple thing it sounds simple but it isn't it's a very complex simple business <laughs> and eventually i found the very high quality um, suppliers in china and we're finalizing over the past year all the details of the packaging which is complex because we want to a paper that doesn't tear so easily on use because there's 40 of these toothpicks in a package and so you use them on and off and so 
there's the consumer brand as tasty picks and then there's the media division which is where you can customize and have it like back in the 70s and 60s and 80s everybody gave away match packs customized with their hotel i remember flying on air mm-hmm. can smoke on air canada they give out air canada customized matches every restaurant pub mm-hmm. you know bar motel hotel everybody had customized matches with their name and a phone number on it so now with a qr code on it on the inside or wherever you want in the package you can have it customized with your name and logo and the qr code can then scan and go to your website or a special deal if you're at a restaurant and they give this out to you at the end of a meal um you know you can scan to pay or you can you know next time you come you can get a free dessert if you scan the qr code so it bridges the physical and digital worlds uh, with and now unfortunately everybody knows what a qr code is because of covid i say unfortunately because it was so misused for to get your digital identity and so on mm-hmm. so uh yeah so who knows what will happen in the next period whether this business with the coming recessions <coughs> um hyperinflation uh, central bank digital currencies and the insanity that this winter may bring i'm worried about it um, and i think we all should be in europe's i i hope you have some wood where you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah a- we're worried we're really really worried good <laughs> well listen this has been an amazing an amazing interview i've never really had one like this before and it's just been a it's just been fascinating interesting enthralling exciting and um inspiring so um as i always i always want to end on a positive note so i think both of us should say don't let the bastards get us down you know let's we've got to keep fighting and um and uh, and that's why i'm so happy to to be here and if anybody wants my free book you'll you you they can download it for free you'll provide a link so on the yes i will absolutely and i'll also include the pictures you sent me from china with your ginseng business and and, uh, on 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 the article page so ron you 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 will recognize this having having been to china you will recognize this and with your shaolin uh, monk um, uh, a nice buddhist bow to you and thank you very much and um thank uh, you we've become friends we've become friends uh across across the yeah. across the Atlantic through all this for the last several months. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to staying in touch. We will. Thanks. All so right. Much. You take care. All right, Bye, buddy. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.